seated. Our speaker this morning is T.J. Rexilius. He's the pastor of Community Bible Church. Let's welcome T.J. Rexilius. Good morning. One person. Thanks, Clay. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Yeah, wrestlers, congrats. Girls basketball last night, congrats. Um, probably, I'm going to do a little church talk here. Probably my favorite doctrine that I've grown to love is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I think uh, my generation down, probably if there's a missing uh, element in their life or truth, or something that they need to grab hold of, it would be that very truth, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And here's what's amazing about that. Some of you went to bed last night hoping you would wake up to a snow day, or an ice day, or something, right? But there's no snow, and you're here in chapel. God's sovereignty, right? (laughs) One person. See, I told you, this is the doctrine you got to learn, right? Who's awake? One person, two, three. Okay, stand up real quick. Stand up, stand up. All right, turn the person to your left, okay? Tell them good morning, okay? Turn to the person to your right and tell them, I want to believe more in God's sovereignty. All right, all right, you can stay standing, turn your Bibles to Mark 12, Mark 12, that's where you guys are at in your walk and journey through the gospel of Mark. So in honor of God's word, we're going to stand and read it and pray, and then we'll dissect together. Mark 12, starting verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
God, you are gracious, you are good, and we are at this school, at this moment, at this time, here this morning. This is not a mistake. You and your goodness have orchestrated that together. God, would you do your work this morning? Would you soften hearts? Would you work as the great general surgeon and heal us? God, may we be receptive to your word. May we not just hear it, but may we do it, as James says. God, would you uh, be with us this morning, and would we walk out of here, just as the text says, that this was marvelous to our eyes. Would you be with us now? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So let's do a little work this morning. I don't think we will understand this parable, this story, if you don't understand verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Who is them? Well, look at verse 1. And he began to speak to them. Who is them? Let's go to chapter 11, verse 33. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Who is the them? Go to verse 27 of chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem. Who is they? Let's keep going back, right? You're welcome, Bible teachers. I'll do your work for you this morning, right? Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes. That is they. That is them. That is who this parable is being addressed to. So you are have finished chapter 11. What happens in 11? The triumphal entry, right? He comes in. There's great excitement and celebration. And the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious elite are not excited about this. They wanted the celebration and the acclamation. Who is this guy that comes in here and receives this kind of attention? We know right after the triumphal entry, he does what? He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple, drives the people out, right? And then we see that his authority is challenged at the end of chapter 11, where you ended last chapel. And they did a poor job at that. And so, we see in verse 1 of chapter 12 there, he began to speak to them in parables. So Jesus turns a little bit here to tell them a story. This is the direction he is taking with the chief priests and the scribes there. A parable is a story, and oftentimes it's about the good news of the gospel. A simple, beautiful truth. The kingdom of God is at hand is often how they started. Probably around 40-some parables, but this one's a little unique. For it's allegorical, 
okay? And he's talking to them, and we figured that out, that that's the chief priests and scribes, right? And he wants them to understand. So he's not trying to confuse here. It's the exact opposite. Jesus wants to bring clarity to them. And we know, looking at this, that we're just a couple days away from what's ultimately going to happen. They're going to get to carry out what they want. When we looked at chapter 11, verse 18, they already had murder in their mind. They were seeking to destroy Jesus. They had no desire, no want to listen, to hear, to try to wrestle with that. They have already decided in their minds and in their hearts and even in their conversations together, they were going to destroy him. And we're days away from that. And Jesus knows that. And he gives a very simple, plain, beautiful parable here. But we need to understand who it's to. This isn't a kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a judgment. Let's look at it together. Let's kind of tear it apart a little bit. And then at the end, I'll give what, what does this mean for you at Nebraska Christian in 2023 in February? We'll get to that. So look at verse 1. So he's addressing these religious elite. And he starts with the story that a man plants a vineyard and he gives an exact, an exact verbiage here from Isaiah 5. Now, I'll be like your art teacher, right? I'll start the work for you, but I'm not going to do it for you. So you can look at Isaiah 5 later. But Isaiah 5, this is exactly out of it. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and leased it to the tenants. It was not uncommon. Okay, the way he starts his story out might seem a little different to us in this time of life. But this was not unfamiliar to them. Okay, that that someone would own a piece of land, a foreigner might come in as a tenant and work the field, work the vineyard. We could get really deep into this. I kind of want to avoid a lot of that because I want to be clear today, but for a little purpose here, a vineyard to produce its fruit, I've been told, takes around four or five years. And I say that because there's some time here for these tenants to kind of see how profitable the land might be, right? They have some time to work through what the vineyard, what the land might be, what the profit might be for them. And the deal was that he would rent it to these tenants, the tenants would work it, and they would give some of the produce back to him. That's what's happening. So as he starts this story, this is not uncommon for them. And it should not be now that we have understood what's going on here. Look at verse 2. So when the season came, that tells me maybe four or five years there. When the season came, when it was right for him to send to go get what rent is due, right? He sends a servant. He sends a servant. What do they do in verse 3? They take him and they beat him. Great way, right? I, 
Hey, I've rented a, an apartment before, a house before, right? Let's say they send so, a worker over, and I just kind of beat them. I don't like you, right? I don't know you anything. Yeah, there's a lot of injustice going on here. I need you to understand that because they're not hearing this and going, oh, this doesn't make any sense. No, it's very, very clear what's going on here. Very clear. So they beat the first servant. Look at verse 4. Again, he sends to them another servant. This time they struck him on the head. That's what my translation says. It literally means they bashed in his head. They bashed it in. They treated him, what? End of verse 4. Shamefully. Insulted him, mocked him. So now we got two servants that have been mistreated, right? All on the basis of going to get what was due. Look at verse 5. <laughs> he sends another. This time, they kill him. They're just nonchalantly, and with so many others. Some they beat, some they killed. This is one of those things where, as they're hearing this story, they're like, that's not right. That's not fair. Where's the justice? Why would he send yet another servant knowing the result? Hey, if, if I'm the landlord here, and they beat up my first servant, what am I doing? Justice will be served. Right? You did that, you're going to owe me rent times two. Right? No, no, no. He sent them many. Okay, if you are a note taker, just in verses two through four, or sorry, two through five, just make a little note. A window of grace a window of mercy, a window of time. A window of grace, a window of mercy, a window of time. Verse 6. He's got one more. He's ran out of servants. Okay, at this point, I, I can't send another one. He's got one more who he's going to send. You need to mark this. He sends his last, a beloved son. A beloved son. Presuming that they will respect him. What do the tenants do in verse 7? They notice right away who it is. This is the landlord's son. Oh, this is his beloved? Beloved means one and only? What? This is the landlord's only son. What do they say in verse 7? Not, oh man, now we really owe rent. Now we got to pay what's due. We're going to shape up now. No, no, no. They plot. Come, 
let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They didn't just plot it, they did it. Verse 8, they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Here's the punchline, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He's still telling the story. But remember, we've got the chief priests and the scribes listening in, and they know that this story is about them. How do we know that? Verse 12, right? Because I said we got to understand verse 12 if we want to understand this parable. They know this is about them. And so the punchline is verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? This isn't foreign to them to say, well, you know, he should just forget about it. They know full well the result of murder. The result of beating for no reason. What will the owner do? I don't think they wrestled with the idea that capital punishment was due to those tenants. They knew full well they had killed multiple servants and then the beloved son. Look at this though. This is a staggering statement. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give. Give. Give the vineyard to others. If I'm the landlord, I'm thinking not only one servant, not two, not three, but many others and my beloved son. I'm done with this renting business. Right? And as every great preacher should do, he throws in not only the Isaiah 5 reference at the beginning, but he goes to Psalm 118. I want you to go there. Keep your finger there in Mark 12, but let's read Psalm 118. He's going to reference for them Scripture that they are well aware of. Now, Isaiah 5 was very, very familiar to them. Just a couple days before in the triumphal entry, there was probably some even singing about that. The end of Isaiah 5. Talks about all the sin that's going on. This was not uncommon to them as he references these things. Psalm 118. Look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, now go back to Mark 12. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? Have you not read Psalm 118? Verse 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He challenges them with scripture. Religious elite, you know. You know the word. 
the stone that the builders rejected. Like the masonry contractor, right? Oh, we don't need this stone. And that stone that's rejected is the very keystone that holds everything together. That's why over and over again, and listen, I'll, I'll reference this in a little bit. I, I've been in your seat. I grew up in a Christian school. Daily Bible class. Daily life long love and pursuit of people pushing me to Christ. The weekly chapel, right? And hearing the gospel over and over and over and over and over. Listen, please hear this. There are only two things that can be done with the good news of the gospel. It's accepted or it's rejected. It's the very keystone that holds everything together. It's not the, as Tim Keller says, which probably he took from Spurgeon, which probably he took from somebody. It's not the ABC of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's why you need it over and over again because our hearts are prone to wander. We go about our sinful ways over and over again. We need the keystone. We need the cornerstone. May not that be the thing that we reject. This, verse 11, was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Address verse 12 here in a second. So, in, in the school that I went to, I want, I want to be, be careful. I have a great, great love Great love for Christian schools. But I know what happens when you sit in here week in and week out. There's justification of what you do. There's the sprinkling of spiritual things here and there that make your mind right. But your heart is far from Him. Your heart is hard like the chief priests and the scribes. All the, all the wooings and the warnings and the promptings and the pleadings throughout your life. That, that aunt, right? Who, who gave you a Bible when you were five. That, that, that Bible teacher or that math teacher who prays with you or that lady in the office who says, have you ever really thought about the things of Jesus? 
all these messengers in your life, all the wooings. If you reject, your heart will become hard. So the Christian school I went to, uh, they gave Timothy awards each year to a boy and a girl. The Timothy Award was just someone of great excellence in their spiritual walk. Oftentimes they did pretty well in school, specifically Bible class, memorization, things like that. Okay? Four years. Yes, that's how many I went to high school. Four years. I watched six people stand up and get those awards. Two are walking with the Lord. Two. May we not fool ourselves that sitting here and hearing week in and week out the truths of God's Word, may it not harden our hearts like the religious elite, the chief scribes, or the chief priests and the scribes knew the references of Scripture that he was referencing. But their pride was so big, they did not like this man who claimed to be the Messiah. And this is about as clear as it gets up to this point. That Jesus is referencing, I'm the one. Who's the beloved son? Who's the beloved son? It's Jesus, right? God is the landlord. And He sends His one and only begotten Son. One final. And and here's the most chilling thing about this. These chief priests and scribes were within touching distance of Jesus. They were in touching distance of Him. This has broken my heart this week to think about this passage, to think about how many have have heard the warnings and the wooings, the things of Jesus, and have rejected them over and over and over again. They weren't seeking just to arrest Him. They wanted to destroy Him. And they feared the people. They feared the people. That's what verse 12 says. Do you fear? Do you fear what your parents... Hi, I send you to Nebraska Christian to learn and do these things. I expect you to do great. I expect an A-plus in Bible. Maybe I'm doing extreme, but you know what I'm getting at. Do you... Are you going through the motions because you fear people? Or do you fear God? Because one day, one day, He will return. And on that day, that window of grace, 
that window of mercy, that window of time that you wrote is over. It's over. You don't get one last chance as you stand before him to say, oh, I I didn't mean for it to go that way. I did do some good things. Matthew talks about that. I did. I did do really well in Bible class. I did go to church every week. I did go to youth group. I did serve. I did do all these things away from me. I never knew you. Your heart was far from me. I guarantee you the religious elite here will say the same things. I knew your word. I memorized it. And yet, they're within touching distance of Him. They are watching the Old Testament prophecy come to fruition right before their eyes and they miss it. Because who's in the way? Themselves. The tenants who want to use the vineyard to their liking. To worship the things of the vineyard. To enjoy the gifts that are from the landlord. And to make that ultimate. All the servants, the prophets over time who have come to tell and warn people over and over again. Look at the lament in Matthew 23. Verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Jesus, the city that kills the prophets. He knows. Days before crucifixion, He knows. And He tells this simple parable to warn them and to woo them yet again, to plead and to prompt stone that the builders rejected is the very peace that they were missing. You miss the good news of the gospel and it doesn't soften your heart. You miss it all. My challenge, my prayer for you is that you would consider these things. That you would actually think about eternal things, which is really hard to do as a teenager. That you would actually think beyond yourself which is really hard for teenagers. That you would actually take the truth of God's Word. And I'm not saying you just understand and accept everything overnight. But that you would be moved by verse 6 that God sent His beloved Son In your place. To 
pay your price. To die your death. And that you would not continue to harden your heart. Let's pray. Who is this God who pursues us like this with this kind of love? Who is this physician that will take our disease from us and bear it on himself? For you so loved the world that you gave your one and only beloved son that whosoever believes not the parents not the school, not the spiritual activities, but that we would see these things as good gifts of warnings and pleadings and promptings of Your Spirit working in our hearts. May we not reject You as the cornerstone, the keystone that holds it together. God, I pray for Your work. In Jesus' name, amen.